one. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Tenacity Strength Fit for Duty podcast. I am Larry Brown. My co-host, Vaughn Ateen, is out this week uh, attending to some uh, personal family time, which is warranted seeing as that the weekend that we are in, 4th of July weekend. Uh, but I wanted to bring on a very special guest. We are very, very happy to bring on uh, world-renowned contest prep coach and creator of the, and correct me if I'm wrong, SST training system, uh, Coach Patrick Tuor. How are you today, sir? Fine. Thank you very much, Larry. It's a pleasure talking to you and uh, finally got to meet you. Yes. Definitely. Even if not in person. De- definitely. Um, you know, technology has made the world much smaller and much more accessible. So I'm very, very happy to uh, have you on the show, especially as I've been hounding you over uh, a year about this uh, SST training program. Uh, so we're going to jump right into it. A lot of our um, viewers aren't bodybuilders. Um, a lot of them are just law enforcement, gin pop um, people, but we do have a lot of listeners that are bodybuilders. So for the non-bodybuilding crowd, can you please introduce your uh, self and your background and um, what do you do now? Well, to make a long story short, um, I just turned 48, 48 years old. I live in southern Switzerland, just on the border to Italy. And um, right now, I'm a full-time prep coach, bodybuilding coach. I have been since uh, 2014 full-times, but I have been coaching athletes since early 1990s, 1993, 94. So I've been doing this all my life, practically. I've always been better in coaching others than myself, even though I was able to win European and World Championships back in the days and turn pro. I competed as a pro uh, several times against uh, athletes like Ronnie Coleman, Jake Cutler, Marcus Rue. I was on stage with all those uh, beasts from the past, but um, I'm very realistic in my abilities to um, especially compete at a professional level. And I really didn't have the genetic makeup to, to really compete at the highest level, which I always wanted to do. I just didn't want to show up and, and you know be average and actually not make any money out of the sport. So actually I retired quite early. I was only 32 years old when I decided to retire from competitive bodybuilding. And then I opened two gyms, uh, different supplement shops here in Switzerland. And um, as my coaching got more intense and uh, always had more athletes, especially worldwide. First it was just you know, mainly Switzerland, Germany, Italy. Then it expanded to overseas. And as it got, you know, really, time costly and I could really not focus on anything else um, I just decided to do it full time so ever since 2014 that's the only thing I do from morning till evening is try to learn more about the sport because you, you never stop learning which I do with the athletes and through uh, obviously reading and researching but mostly uh, that's all I do day long so and today here I am tell us briefly briefly about your uh, competitive days and how it shaped you as a prep coach? Um, well, I think you have to kind of see the circumstances and, and, and era, which that was, that was late nineties. And um, you probably remember it was a very difficult, very different bodybuilding scene back then. Obviously we did not have internet like it is today, the social medias. 
So everything you would see and learn was through magazines and, and you know, actually meeting people. So the learning process was much slower and was much more anecdotal. You know, you would, you know, try things on yourself and talk to other athletes. Whereas today you go on Instagram and one day you feel like, you know, you have seen it and, and touched upon everything. Even with the internet, I mean, you can get information uh, from everywhere, from, from every, any research that is published to, to, you know, athletes, writing, talking, coaches, same thing. Back then we did not have that. So I think the learning process, which, which was more by uh, deduction, more than induction, you know, more than learning through uh, reading, studying, it was just trying things and, and talking to other guys doing it. And um, I think if you had the necessity, which we had to do it that way, I think it is something that really sinks in much stronger, you know, trying things on your own skin and through the athletes that you see daily, you talk. I think it, it gives you much a stronger feeling of what works, what doesn't work, what should be done, what shouldn't be done, than just simply, you know, theoretically learning about it. So I think that's the biggest difference from back then to today. And I think that is, you know, something I will carry with me for, for you know, all, all my career as a bodybuilding coach because I went through it. You know, I walked the walk and I, I know what it means to do certain things on my bones and my skin on my stomach and um, I think today's you have a lot of young coaches who are really good actually at what they do because um, the, the results you know the athletes have speak for themselves but um, I think they lack a little bit of this hands-on experience they didn't they don't they didn't go through it all I mean I'm not saying that you need that as a coach but I think if you have you know walked the walk and gone through certain things and not just got the information through other coaches, which most of the guys now do, and really had to find out yourself what was good and what was not. It, it, it just, it just, it's like it's part of your DNA more than your brain. It's just, you know, sinks in you. So I, I think that's probably one of the difference with maybe other coaches. It's funny that you bring up the subject of young coaches and uh, having to learn um, through a lot of your mistakes. Is that something that's missing in bodybuilding right now with the advent of the explosion of social media, the internet? Is that something where you're having to uh, work out your own type of coaching for yourself? Is that something that's lost learning from your own mistakes? Um, I, don't, I don't know. I, mean, I personally feel a little bit it has. But um, obviously, you know, you can, you see young coaches doing really well in what they do. So um, you can't say it's one is wrong and the other is right. I'm just, I'm, I, I just feel like today it's, you get to the point where I am, for example, much faster. Um, you can, you know, if you have a chance to work with somebody very talented who uh, gets you that media exposure, very fast you become uh, you know, known in the industry and, and are able to work on a bigger scale. And maybe that the experience part is missing a little bit. So, but again, uh, I mean, like, like a good doctor doesn't have to be sick to heal somebody. A good coach doesn't, you know, necessarily need to be a good bodybuilder to, to train one. But uh, I feel it's, it's, it has 
they're lacking a little bit this experience hands-on and to a certain degree probably uh, didn't have so much volume of athletes they have coached I probably coached over 500 athletes over over you know this 20 22 year span so you get to see a lot of different scenarios and I think the more you have put your hands on on different types of situations people you know going from the psych you know, mental aspect to the physical aspect, you just get a deeper understanding of, of you know, certain variables that you have to know as a, as a bodybuilding coach. So that could be one of the differences, yeah. Do you feel that academics, a formal academic um, education plays a vital role in being a coach? Um, it probably doesn't. No, I don't think it does because again, you have great coaches who don't have, um, uh, you know, a biology history. I mean, um, uh, how you say academic background, or, um, like I have, for example. But I think to a certain degree, it helps you make sense of certain things. But I don't think it's a necessity again, because you can see a lot of coaches out there who don't have that, who are good coaches. So, you know. A good coach is only as good as the genetics and the discipline uh, and uh, obviously the life an athlete can surround himself with. So if, if you only coach average genetic people, you, you're probably, even if you're the best in the world, you probably will not be well known. If you have a chance to coach you know, high level, high, with extremely good genetics, bodybuilder professionals, for example, then you will be known whether you're very good or not. And obviously, I can tell you it's much easier to prep a professional bodybuilder than it is an average amateur because that's probably all they do because they have great genetics because usually they have a financial situation which allows them to only do that and amateurs don't. So, you know, they have family life, work, jobs and, and I think from those situations you learn actually much more but they are more difficult than to coach somebody who wants to go to Mr. Olympia. Obviously, the attention to details will be a little different, but it's not, it's not more difficult. It's funny that you bring up athletes. Um, you are coaching uh, probably some of my favorite uh, European-based athletes um, that I follow. Um, one notably, uh, the Swiss pocket knife, uh, Nicholas Valud, and then the other who I am a big fan of and very high up on, uh, James Hollingshead, what are the approaches that you take with those two very advanced uh, bodybuilders? Vastly different, some of the same, any commonalities? Um, I, I think, for example, if you mention those two, I don't know if the listeners know them, but if you do, they are very different. One is, is, a, is a very short, uh, more stocky bodybuilder. Uh, Nicholas, where the other is a taller, bigger frame bodybuilder. And um, the preps are pretty much different. Uh, also, the training styles are very different because they have different backgrounds. Nicholas has been with me since day one. And our programming through the years has been very specific to his needs. His training has been much more metabolic than strength-based, uh, strength-related, um, let's say like that, because... He is a shorter guy and he doesn't have a hard time to put on muscle size. So we always tried to 
you know, try to make his physique a little more pleasing. The structurally has a lot of flaws that uh, we need to, we needed to cover over the years, you know, especially his long torso, his overwhelming leg size at the beginning compared to his upper body. Whereas, for example, uh, James is a much more balanced athlete, if you want, and has, uh, he's a very strong, so his background is, you know, has been training more strength than, than Nicholas has. So their path has been different up, leading up to now. And um, also, if you imagine the amount of food and just um, the, the attention to certain details is very different from one to the other. One athlete needs to stay in a certain weight range, so we have to kind of monitor, you know, his, his, his weight gain and his muscle gain, which we actually reduced over a, a whole year period for Nicholas because he wasn't getting too big. And for James, it's the opposite. He'll never be too big. So the only thing we're trying to do is make sure he grows in the right places and not, you know, midsection and doesn't get blocked there, but keeps his line, which is, is, is very good for his height and size. So and it's, it's pretty different in the way you, you approach and you have to think the prep, whether it be in training or whether it be with nutrition. So there are not very many similarities, if you want. Probably the, 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 the biggest similarity is that they train, they both train four to five times a week and eat six meals a day. But then when you go look at what they do, is is, is I would say radically different. That's a very good, uh, very good analysis between two different um, Olympia level. Well, in James' case, will be Olympia level athlete. Um, talk to us about SST training, the origins of it, uh, where it's at now, where you see it going, and um, I've noticed the lack of, uh, at least from what I've seen, the lack of. Uh, books or guides for it um talk to us about that and will we expect to see anything in the future uh as far as like a book release on sst training um well sst is is just a the abbreviation for a sarcoplasmic stimulation training and you actually could call it uh, different you know with different names but i use the word sarcoplasmic which is the reticulum circle um, sarcoplasmatic, and I know you say it in English, but it's correct. And which is that space basically around myofibers. If you take a, a, a muscle fiber, inside you have mainly muscle fiber. Obviously, you have mitochondria and everything, but we won't go into details. You have these myofibers, which are, you know, very thin filaments. And around us, you have the sarcoplasmic space, let's call it that way. And if you look at for example, the difference in structure between a power lifter and a bodybuilder, the main difference you will see in the structure of this space around the myofibers because training is different. I mean, you know, both athletes being power lifter or bodybuilder eat a lot of food. Most of them probably, you know, take uh, performance-enhancing drugs probably. Um, anyway, they're very, very similar in what they do to get big besides obviously the training style, but they have different results. And even a bodybuilder is not as strong, even though he's not as strong, he has a more development in, in most of his muscle groups and size is rounder. So where does that come from? It doesn't mainly come from myofibrillar hypertrophy, which we call, which is structural 
growth. It comes from this sarcoplasmic stage, which is more chronically developed because of the, the way our um, bodybuilders train unconsciously over years. They just know we need to do more reps, more volume, more intensity. We just saw that this makes the bodybuilder grow more than just doing straight heavy sets. So basically what I tried to do is just analyze what variables in training you have to manipulate in order for this growth to be more efficient and how you could chronically you know, manipulate it so that progressively you can get rounder and bigger. And what you needed to do with, for example, your nutrition also to be able to compensate and make sure that the two, you know, the training and the nutrition would fit better together. That's when I found out, you know, the differentiation in muscle fiber types, how we you know we have seven from eight sub muscle fiber types, and then you have fast and slow twitch. Mm-hmm. Fast are the muscle fibers which give you strength. Slow twitch are the red, what we call red muscle fibers because they have more blood, um, more capillarization, and they give us more endurance. So bodybuilders mainly concentrate on the fast muscle twitch rather than the, the slow muscle fiber types. But then in the, in, the, in the fast twitch fibers you have, which we call white, you have many subtypes. And these subtypes um, are training related. That means they develop more or less in function of what you do in training. But then also the red muscle fiber types, the, the, the slow twitch, have influence over overall size development and they need to be stimulated to a certain degree in order for a muscle cell to function properly and efficiently and keep you know uh, uh, growing let's say over time so that's when i tried to put together a training philosophy which would contain a more metabolic aspect which is you know more time under tension basically um, and the tensional aspect in a way they could interrelate to each other and make each other stronger. Not just, you know, train either heavy or train light with more reps, but make sure that everything was in the same workout, sometimes in the same set. And you could progressively, you know, manipulate how much you would do of each strong or, or more time under tension in order for each to grow and help, you know, both both muscle, um, both trainings, you know, metabolic and tensional, would actually help each other to grow. And, and uh, over time, since strength is limited because you cannot get stronger all your life, even in off season, there's a point where you can get stronger. So, how, what do you need to incorporate inside your training in order to keep progressing, even if you're not just straight getting strong? Basically, that's what the concept behind SST is. And when will we see some type of uh, some type of paper resource? Yeah. I actually I started working on a book um, two years, two and a half years ago. Um, maybe you have seen that um, the SST, three different variables of the SST, have been uh, tested, the university tested, because mm-hmm. you know a lot of people out there come up with some type of straining style and say, this is the best, this is good, this works. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, who is to say that an athlete can grow doing 50 reps on the bench press? Obviously you can grow if you're genetically gifted and 
you do what you need to do, then you, you can't just say, oh, the training style is what made you that way. And you see so many bodybuilders train different ways and still be big. So how can you at least say that what you are, you know, trying to explain and propose to athlete has scientific validity? So that's, you know, has been tested in university. It has been tested with strength athletes, not just the normal students, you know, sitting around who the first time pick up a dumbbell, but it has been done with people who have at least two years of training experience and compared to a traditional standard set, um, training, uh, like the reader principle training, which you know, mm-hmm. and it has shown that it has uh, a much better acute response to muscle adaptation and growth. And the biochemical parameters in the training were better than just the normal. We're talking about lactate levels. We're talking about um, inflammation process, post-training and everything. So it has shown even, you know, when tested, a a positive effect in an acute response. That means, you know, within the 24 hours after training. Now what they're doing is testing the chronic response because Maybe something is good in the short term, but then you have to prove that in the long term you can still benefit from it and you'll also get you know, better, let's say, gains or results. And that is being done and probably will be finished by 2021 in the summer. Everything has stopped now because of the coronavirus, so they'll probably have to reset everything and start over again. And, and when I will have uh, all these results, then I feel very comfortable in you know, writing or putting it on paper and saying, look, this is uh, what I would advise you to do. This is what I know is good. This is what anecdotally with athletes I've seen work. And I can prove it also in the scientific part. Because if you don't have the scientific part proving that what you say is right, at least scientifically, then it's just an opinion that you have. I mean, that's the way I feel. So for it to come out, it will take a little more time because others just don't want it to be a marketing gag or one of the you know, many trainers out there saying, oh, this and that, do this and, and call it a name and, and, and say this is you know, somewhat revolutionary because it's not. So I want to make sure I can prove what I say, not just with the athletes that I train, but also you know, with the scientific uh, backup. So this is where programming and art kind of combines to make something very, very special. Uh, how long did it take for you to develop this type of programming for your athletes? Um, well, it, it probably took all my career, basically, because, you know, I had started to do certain things, but unconsciously. Um, you know, you go by field in the gym first on yourself. Then you try it on some, some athletes that you train. Maybe sometimes you work with athletes who don't have the, the capacity anymore to train very heavy or have training limitations to some degree. So you with your instincts, you try to develop you know, ways to train which can still you know, keep them progress. And um, I just, at one point, I just got, I got to where I needed to understand what I was doing. Now, there's one thing to say, oh, try this or do this or experiment on yourself. And the other is trying to understand and make sense of what you do. Know how much you have to do it. How long do you have to do it? Why? And know what, what is happening inside your body that makes doing certain things uh, good. And that's when I 
start to do research and I obviously had people help me, people who work in, 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 in the university sports, uh, professionals, physiologists, and also um, who could explain the biochemical part more than I do because you know my studies were never really sports related. I could understand certain processes, but you know, biology and and um, and physiology and, and applied sports physiology is still a little bit different. You need to have understand certain things, which which I had limitations on. So I had people help me trying to make sense of what we did. So it's it's really a process which took a lot of years, and it's still going on. Still to today, obviously, you always find out certain limitations, certain things that you need to adapt, and it probably will be we be like this for the rest of my life. You, you never stop, you know, learning. You never stop adapting things. Who are some of the people that you um, learned from in the beginning, as far as uh, coaching techniques and how to become a better coach, and just uh, who? also did you learn from for, for your own bodybuilding purposes? Um, well, mostly to 90%, I would say I'm, I'm self-taught in that sense, because again, when I was becoming a bodybuilder, the only people I could talk to is people close to you or that you would meet or things that you would read in magazines. So I always tried to make sense of, of uh, what I was doing myself. Obviously, then at one point when I turned professional, I, I seek help from what I thought at the time being, you know, the best coaches out there. And uh, but and I don't mean to disrespect anybody, but I, I found a lot of improvisation now, and I found a lot of it has worked for him. You need to do the same thing. And I worked. I found a lot of things that were really blown out of proportion, you know, compared to the real need that you have about you. Know, about doing certain things. So uh, again, I don't mean to disrespect anybody because uh, obviously I learned from these experiences, but what I learned more what not to do than what to do actually, because bodybuilding is, is not very complicated sport. Uh, you don't need to be a rocket scientist, you know, to do certain things and grow, especially if you have a good genetics. But it's another thing to try to minimize certain aspects, negative aspects of the sport by still maximizing your results. So that's a little ballgame. You know, there's, it's one thing is throwing all you can at your body and see what happens and, and hope it grows. And one thing is to throw at your body only what it needs and which will, again, minimize negative effects and maximize still the same amount of growth. So that's a little different way of approaching prep I think and that's what I like to do is give you what you need and not just you know give everything that I know could help you and and then one of the things that you're doing probably will do something where do you think a lot of bodybuilders miss the point or miss the mark as far as um, training goes training intensity goes where do you think people are going wrong at wrong at that um, I don't know if the right word you should use is intensity because intensity is something um, I think is something you have in you. I don't know if it's something that can be learned, maybe some athletes, but it's just, you know, this, this hunger for being better and, and for discipline is something whether you have it or you don't. Um, 
you know, a champion is born. I, I truly believe that a champion is born with certain characteristics that come out over time and you can't teach them what they're there or they're not there, especially when you're talking about high level sports, any sport, also bodybuilding. Um, but probably to your question, the biggest mistake is the lack of programming. A lot of athletes obviously are genetically gifted and in the early years, they have a lot of advancement, you know, they progress without really thinking too much about what they do. Um, because pretty easily they grow and, and, and become competitive. Especially these athletes are really the ones who could take it to the next level, but they have been in this habit of, you know, getting things easier, that it's very difficult at one point to make them think differently and really approach the sport from a more technical side and from a more precise, you know, aspect of, of, of seeing things. So that's probably one thing. Um, I could make examples like, um, you know, you have athletes like Dexter Jackson, um, at the time, Lebroni, Flex Wheeler. You, you, you could see they never really had to, what we call, kill themselves to be what they are. Uh, you know, they, they, what they did came natural, so they never really took it to, to the next level. Obviously, I can't put Dexter in this because he is one of the greatest of all time. But he lasted so long because you really never had to push it so far because, you know, if, if you and me probably would train like, like he did and, and do things like he did, we'd never be like him. No. But then you take somebody else like Ronnie Coleman, for example, who had these great genetics but took the training to a whole new level. You take somebody like Dorian Yates at the time who took, you know, who rewrite the books back in the days and took, you know, his training to a other level, they were able to make the difference. Um, Ronnie probably unconsciously because it was just his nature to be this freaky athlete in the gym. Dorian, because he knew that he didn't have the genetic makeup of his competitors and he did take a mental approach and, and analyzed training and took it to a, another level. So again, to your question is, I think everybody needs to understand who they are, what they are made of and be realistic and give it time first but have a program have a plan not just you know the next 16 weeks to show but over the next four five six years have a, an idea of where you're going what's your nutrition what's your training what's your supplementation don't just think you know two three months ahead think years ahead bodybuilding is is, is a is a slow process especially if you don't have you know flex wheeler type genetics so really know where you want to go and have an idea of what you know road is going to take you there, and that has to be that's programming. That's it needs to set you know short term and long term goals. And I see a lot of this probably missing inside the bodybuilding world. This is just let's go from one show to the other, and I really think over a longer period of time what needs to be done. Let's get into nutritional strategies a bit. <coughs> I am not the biggest nutrition guy. In bodybuilding, in fact, I, I'm very poor at it. So give me some nutritional strategies that support uh, the SST style of training that can be transferred over to general population. Uh, any, anytime you take your training um, or you make your training more intense, more metabolic, that means that 
the time your muscle is working inside a workout is longer. And the amount of time to reach muscle failure and really the maximum stimulation is very short and dense. And some call it intensity. I don't like to call it intensity, but let's say very, very, a lot of energy is spent in a short period of time. Then you have to understand that glucose, uh, which is carbohydrates, are extremely important to fuel that type of performance. Net, to be able to do a certain type of training, it can only be done with proper levels of uh, first ATP, have a, a great ATP resynthesis, and good glycogen stores. That means that energy needs to be there. It needs to be very efficient. And in order to do that, you have to have as many carbs as possible in your diet. And over time, try to increase that. But you can only increase that if you can make, let's say, your muscle hungrier, if you can make your muscle more performing. But not performing because you train four hours, because if you try to do that, certain processes will actually slow down the efficiency which nutrients are taken up because you become, the body starts defending itself. So learn to do it more, more intensively possible. What you usually try to do in terms of performance in an hour, you, you need to learn to do in 30 minutes. That means that the action that you have on your muscle is much stronger. Therefore, the reaction will be proportional. That's just the law of physics, of, of chemics. Action equal reaction, and that's the way our body works. It needs to learn to resynthesize energy and to stock energy more efficiently. That's where the carbohydrate becomes very important. Um, in this case, the higher your carbohydrate intake is, the less important to a certain degree becomes protein intake because carbohydrates and glucose are amino acid sparing. So you, you really don't have that much amino, uh, amino acid degradation because your, your carb intake is so high. And that's an advantage because you can actually grow with less you know, amino acids. Just uh, Amino acids come from proteins for the people who are listening to us. So that's another advantage. And makes, you can eat a larger amount of food for the calories that you eat comes more from carbs than from protein sources, which and obviously are more hard to digest and to simulate and stress your stomach and your intestines over you know, a chronic period of time much more than, than carbs. So that's the main um, probably focus that you have when you try to grow is try to maximize the amount of carbs that you eat. But by doing that, you need to make your body hungrier for carbs. And you need to make sure that it turns carbs over efficiently. And that can be manipulated through training. But I think those two aspects are the most important. One is the more nutrients you can turn over, the more your body gets sensitive to you know, turning glucose into glycogen and using glucose and glycogen as energy, the more efficient your training will be. The more efficient your training will be, the higher your performance, the higher the growth rate. Basically, you know, the way explaining very simply, that's the reasoning behind it. What do you think of intra-workout nutrition? Is this something that's vital to an athlete's progress or is it something uh, that really flows from person to person? And what is your preferred uh, intra-workout concoction or intra-workout formula that you would suggest to people to try? 
But I, I think it basically come down, comes down to how much food you are able to eat throughout your day over a certain period of time. If you're well-nourished, if you, you know, are able to introduce a lot of calories or good calories, especially carbs, I think this, this intra-workout doesn't, isn't, isn't necessary, and I actually don't like it. Because you have to understand that inside of training, your body, your muscle contraction, um, actually uses energy, which, he has, which is stocked in form of glycogen and ATP reserves. So the body is trying to you know, put out energy, give you energy, and at the same time, you're trying to feed it energy. So you're, you're asking your body to use what it has to produce energy through muscle contraction and other, obviously, metabolic classes. And the other side, you're trying at the same time to feed it. And, and that's something very difficult to do, especially if you're too aggressive with it. So if you have enough calories, if you're able to eat enough carbs before your training and after your training, um, that little span of, of, of you know, an hour, an hour and a half that you train is actually even positive if you, to some degree, empty your energy reserves because a very well-known process, which is called this compensation process, which you know you don't grow through, through uh, during your training, but you grow eight, 10, 12 hours post-training. Mm -hmm. So if you're actually able to put your body in a slight deficit during your training, create this deficit and compensate correctly from it, the process which you will create, which is this compensation process, will actually benefit you more over the long run than trying to force you, you know, your, your muscle during the training. Obviously, if you are, um, for example, carb sensitive or you're calorie reduced and a very large bodybuilder um, and you need to do very intense trainings, it's somewhat, let's call it dangerous to train in these circumstances and you can't break down amino acids for energetic purposes. So maybe in this case, you would introduce um, uh, some type of carb source during the training highly branched cyclic dextrin or the target or something like that. But very little. We're talking even on a large, large bodybuilder like James, for example, would use maybe 20, 30 grams and, that, and that's it. What I prefer to do in these cases, have a small, um, highly absorbable meal, maybe 45 minutes before training with, again, some simple type of sugars like highly branched cyclic dextrin and some amino acids. But give it time to settle in the stomach and be absorbed and not trying to force something in your stomach through your training. So again, you always have to see the acute response, what is it causing, and then over the long period, if something is sustainable and, and gives you also benefits in the long run. So I, I would advise if you're well-nourished not to force you know, too much nutrients inside your training and use that to sensibilize your body and to compensate to take more nutrients up post-training. That's very interesting because I know we're in an age where intra-workout nutrition is pushed. And I hadn't thought of it from a let your body get into a deficit so we can compensate later uh, type of mentality. Um, here in America, and it's probably pretty big in Europe, I'm not pretty sure, I'm not too sure. Uh, a lot of us, including myself, we're high up on uh, pre-workout powders. Um, Advantages, disadvantages, your personal opinion on them? Well, what is uh, in this pre-work? You mean stimulants or? Yeah, stimulant-based uh, pre-workout. Yeah, I, again, um, 
if you do it once in a while, you know, you had a bad day or you didn't sleep well, but you need to train, then taking any type of stimulant to some degree obviously can help you go through the training. But you always have to keep in mind if, if, if you stimulate your body, let's say chemically, um, you, you, what you do is you stress uh, adrenalinic response. Um, you, you force your body to produce adrenaline and norepinephrine, you know, byproducts of adrenaline, which stress your organism and make your, um, what is it called in English? Um, your um, serotonin the gland, the, the gland that produces adrenaline. Um, not amygladine, not amygladine. Mm. I can't, I can't pronounce, but I know what you're anyway, talking about. Anyway, and when you stress, you know, this, this adrenalinic response from your body, the body will try to compensate, especially post-training. So it, it actually puts your, your body in, in a very dangerous state, which from which it has to recuperate post-training. And that can be catabolic because then cortisol levels increase, stress hormone levels increase. So while you're doing it, you feel actually very well. But also remember that this, this increased alertness and this increased strength is in your brain. I mean, it, it is mainly your brain which gets this information from adrenaline, this fight, you know, fight for it um, mode that you're in, not your muscles. Your muscles try to be something that your brain is, but they're not. And the hormonal cascade that you have post-training, especially if you do it chronically, actually hinders your growth process. So you just become this beast in your mind, which you're metabolically not. So you're, you're just kind of forcing your body into a state which naturally can be. And if you once in a while, it's good. If you do it over the long run, you're probably going to have a hard time growing from it because of this, you know, trying this, this, this compensation the body will try to do from something he isn't naturally able to do. It's one thing to take performance enhancing drugs. It's one thing to enhance your training to a point where you're mentally uh, in a state where metabolically you're not. So I would, you know, advise to use it spraying. Let's go back to training for a little bit. Um, exercise selection. How important is that in the overall scheme of programming? And what do you look for when you're choosing exercises for your athletes? Um, most of the time, that is something I leave up to the athlete. I give suggestions, um, especially certain muscle groups when you're trying to get a certain response. For example, being back thickness more than width. Um, same thing for chest. Uh, or you know, create more sweep on a quad. Obviously, there are certain exercises will be more efficient in doing what you're trying to do with that muscle group. So that's when, you know, I, I'll talk with the athlete and say, look, maybe we have to focus more on certain type of exercises than others. But basically, um, what I've learned over the years is it's very important that you try to do those exercises where you feel the most comfortable with, where you have the best mind-muscle connection. Even if it's a few exercises, it's better to do those where you really are performing well than to try to do some exercise because it has been said to be so good and you know so growth promoting 
but it's not working for you. For example, free weight squats or, or deadlifts. Not everybody has that connection or the ability to really perform in those exercises efficiently. So you're just wasting energy. So really what you're trying to do is find those exercises that work well for you, which you connect well to, and try to really take the most advantage out of that. One thing you can't forget is that a muscle does not know what you're trying to do. A muscle contracts and relaxes. So whether it comes from a leg extension or a free weight squat, a muscle is still doing the same type of work. So what you have to see is the load that you're using, how efficiently it transmits on your cell, which is contracting and relaxing. If that load is efficiently you know, um, transformed into energy, then it's a good exercise for you. If not, don't force yourself in trying to do something where maybe you're trying to compensate with other things and just wasting a lot of energy instead of you know, targeting that muscle which you're trying to work. What do you think of trainees that use the logbook as a measurable uh, book of progress? Is that something that can be sustained long-term or should it just be introduced in certain training cycles and then a more instinctive approach comes along uh, that you use? I think that is something very interesting for people, for beginners and intermediate athletes to see where they are, see their progress. It's a good thing to know, you know what has been done and where they still need to, to you know, become better. And it's always good to look back over a week, over your trainings, you know, mentally go through the things that you did. So I think it's actually pretty positive. Then when you reach a certain level, especially at the professional level, very large bodybuilders, it's, it's very, it, I mean, nobody says it shouldn't be written down what you do, absolutely not. But it becomes much more instinctive uh, and you have to react much faster on things that you do because your body is so highly responsive to everything that probably daily what you do is you know see what your performance looks like your overall feeling energy and, and, and recuperation and based on that then you, you you decide on on what to do and more than the performance itself what becomes important is the volume of training that you use at a certain level it becomes very important to reduce to to increase you know the amount of work that you do in function of what your body is responding. More than the numbers in each lift, it becomes important how much total work that you do. So you have to have more of an idea of the amount that this work is put in in your training more than each single set where you're progressing or not. Let's get into an often taboo subject, um, pharmacology. Is it necessary to be a good bodybuilder with bodybuilding pharmacology? Um, look, um, I, I think here you have and you deserve an honest answer and also for the listeners. Uh, it is obviously very difficult, almost impossible to build this overly human beast, which you see uh, you know, on, on professional stages without the help of some type of performance enhancing drugs, which is probably in every sport. And once you reach a certain level, 
the performance and what you have to, what you ask your body to do is, is very superhuman. Let's say that's just the right word. So it's very difficult to obtain that type of, of performance and look in bodybuilding without you know, a certain type of help. I think the most important message that I can give is really understand that it's not a matter of how much. Believe me, I'm you know, 24 hours inside bodybuilding, especially at professional level, and what I see is really sometimes out of this world. What I see uh, some athletes do to look the way that they do is just, is just how would I say, it just doesn't make any sense anymore. Um, over the years, there has been this myth that you know, the more you do certain things, the bigger and better you get. And I can tell you, it's, it's totally not true. Sometimes you just need a little longer, and over time you will have better results instead of you know, wanting to gain 20, 30 pounds over, over three, four weeks, which is just not something your body will be able to sustain if it has, you know, is a result of an acute uh, over physiological amount of, of chemicals. You just can't. I mean, you're some, you look like something you're not be able to sustain over time. And also your health will suffer from it. So yes, you know, performing enzyme drugs are part of being the superhuman bodybuilder, but there is a difference between abusing certain things to certain degrees, which too many athletes do, and use it to a certain way to your advantage, you know, making sure your performance is, is the highest possible and that you recover from your trainings, period. That needs, needs to be the purpose if you decide to do something like that. And always keep your health parameters under check. If something starts to go overboard, and stays too long overboard, then you just lose control of what you are and what you will be. So that's the message that probably I want to give. How important is a aggressive mental aspect as far as making progress? How important is that in bodybuilding? Oh, it is probably very important, but it's, it is also important that it's something that you can switch on and off. Um, you have to understand that you can be always on. Um, again, um, your your body will start to suffer if you're always on and trying to kill every training that you do. There are periods, um, and the higher the level you are, the more of these you need. Is you need to turn this 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 beast on, this aggressiveness on, and you need to turn it off. That's the main aspect that, you know, high-level athletes need to learn. And also be that beast inside the gym and not outside. Outside, you have to relax. Outside, you have to come down. You have to compensate. And don't try to be that beast for too long of a time. Always, you know, be able to take a step back, recalibrate everything mentally and physically. So that's probably the most difficult thing for athletes to do is to switch this thing, you know, this aggressiveness on but be able always, always to come off from. Many athletes stay on this 24 hours a day and for a long period of time because they just become so, so um, tunnel vision, which, which you need, but it, what makes you to a certain degree at one point will start to hurt you. In today's age of uh, social media and bodybuilding, what do you see 
online that gets you excited and hopeful for more athletes to come into the sport? Hmm. That's, that's, that's a very difficult question, actually. What gets me excited? Um, um, I have to be honest with you and say that lately I'm getting more less excited than excited. Um, if I if I look back at how the sport was, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago, um, I just I saw more bodybuilding, I saw more work, I saw more smaller elite, or let's say the people that really make the sport great were the ones who were looked up looked uh, upon you know looked admired today with social media you have everybody has their chance to to speak up and to say whatever is on their mind and to show whatever they want which obviously for businesses is good but i think young people approaching today's uh, bodybuilding on the internet and social media many times get distracted from what it should be and get introduced into this this world made of a lot of bro science made out of a lot of glamour or, or, or things that are not important more than um, really what should be uh, what should they should be focused on so actually I get a little more than excited I'm a little scared of, of the direction the sport is going because of you know, certain people having so much influence on the sport that really are not, you know, top level bodybuilders and, and the ones who should be speaking up, you should be admired. And I, you really hit the nail on the head because I rent, I went into a rant uh, in one of the gyms that I train at on Friday that a lot of people are listening to people who have achieved absolutely zero in bodybuilding. I am a fan of if you are a champion bodybuilder, I'm more apt to listen to you than Joe Blow down the street. I still think there is something, I still think there is something, something, excuse me, there that a champion can speak to and say, hey, this is what it takes to build a great body. This is what it takes to get to where I'm at. But what I'm finding is that people, again, who now have a voice that didn't have a voice before, because you know, back in the 90s, the only way to really have a voice was to be in a magazine. And nine times out of 10, the person that was, uh, who penned the article, whether it was a pro bodybuilder or an amateur, really didn't pen the article, it was their words, but it was a ghostwriter. Um, people still listened. Um, I find that is what's missing today. We're not listening to champions. We're listening to people who have never done anything outside of learn how to hit a pose correctly for a filtered camera lens. Yeah, I agree with you. So let's talk about people coming down the pike. We obviously have Nicholas and we have James. Who else that you're coaching, who else is coming down the pike that we should be on the lookout for? Sorry. That's all right. Okay. Um, look, um, I don't really want to make names because I, I think these people um, need, need to prove themselves before, you know, before I have, you know, before my words reach others out there. But 
All I can tell you is I have I have the privilege to work with some very young, uh, talented athletes all, all over the world, actually, some in South America, Mexico, Brazil, some of them um, in the Arabic world. You know, very talented, hardworking people. But, you know, Larry, I've seen so many good young guys have it all, and all of a sudden you just, they, they just, you know, step out of the line they just lose it they just lose focus because it's just hard you know it's hard physically it's hard mentally it's hard financially so it's i don't want to blow sunshine up their ass like like we say in switzerland before they actually walk the walk so um also some very good pros that you know are very fresh in the pro ranks that i work with have the potential to be really good but again um before we speak from of them, I think it's good if they show you know, that they deserve that uh, that uh, respect and uh, show it on stage before we show it on, on social media. Because I show a lot of things on social media and they look great and they are proud of it. But that's one thing: show it on stage uh, takes a whole different beast than you know to look good in, on Instagram. So let's wait and. Uh, I'll be happy to come back to you and, and talk to you about some of them when they have proved themselves. And hopefully we'll still be around. Like I said, we're a young podcast, so yeah. um, hopefully we'll still be around. But uh, Patrick, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for showing up on our show. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, your insights on uh, bodybuilding. If people want to get in contact with you or follow you on social media, give us some of your social media handles and where they can reach you at. Uh, on Instagram, it's P-Tour, T-U-R, and on Facebook, it's Patrick Tour. Uh, my email, you find on my, on my Instagram, but it's bigpat at hotmail.ch. So that's, uh, that's where they can find me if they're interested. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, Patrick. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank and you for having me, Larry. Uh, thanks for the opportunity, and uh, let's do it again some other time. Absolutely. Absolutely. So for the, for Vaughn, a teen who was not here, I'm Larry Brown. Thank you for watching the Fit for Duty Tenacity Strength Podcast. Subscribe to us on Apple iTunes and listen to us on Spotify. We'll be back with you next week with hopefully another guest. We're still working that out. And uh, again, Patrick, thank you very much. You have a wonderful evening. Thank you for having me. Have a good evening. Have a good evening.